Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us right now on these elasticities, as they are called, is Amrita Sen. She is absolutely fabulous at the dynamics of supply and demand. Amrita, throw out your textbook right now. Explain to us the linear or log elasticities of demand coming back. John just highlighted the Goldman thought. Is it linear, gradual, at a, at a unit pace, or is there some acceleration tendencies where, boom, we get back to a better price? Uh, elasticities, uh, morning, matter only when you can actually drive or fly. I think that's the problem we have with a lot of these uh, models that we are running. Um, you know, given the prices right now, demand would be phenomenally strong in a few months' time, but it doesn't work when everybody is in lockdown. Um, you know, we've been uh, we've been calling for ten dollar oil uh, for Brent as well for a while, and you know we've we've absolutely looked at single digit prices. So this has to happen because the only way you're going to balance this market right now is for prices to go to levels to get supplies to shut. And you're finally setting that in motion. Tank tops are here. But in some ways, prices have also done the work to get supplies running. Sorry, so Brent, rather, rather running. Brent, Brent getting to $10, just to give you some perspective, the June contract currently trading just under $20 a barrel. So that means a loss of almost 50% that you foresee in the near future. I want to understand the here and now. We've got Saudi tankers barreling down on the Gulf Coast with tons, billions, millions of barrels of oil ready to be deployed. You have uh, the fact that all of the storage capacity has nearly filled up. The tanks are topping out. What happens when we run out of storage, which many experts think will happen within weeks here? I think that's the critical question. And, you know, this is why we were never bullish, even after the OPEC deal, because for us, it was a a little too late because the surge in April is going to hit at a time when demand is at its worst. But B, the scale of the cutbacks is simply not enough to offset the demand falls. The issue is, if we're going to get tanked up in the next couple of weeks, that's why prices need to go down to levels we saw crazy negative levels because you're essentially saying to producers stop producing right now and that's why we are still saying we're not out of the woods yet i don't think there's a lot more downside right now because remember even though brent is in the teens a lot of the physical differentials like dated brent is actually half of the price so we have already achieved our price target it's not the futures we're talking about. We're talking about the physical market here. But I think the critical thing is that you can't expect prices to start rising. They need to stay here for a while. Production has to have to shut in very, very quickly. Because once we hit tank tops, you have to get supply equaling demand from the very moment. And Rita, I wanted you to help me understand the following line. It came from SockGen, and it was something that I actually didn't realize. And it goes as follows, quote, unlike Brent, the WTI future contract is physically delivered and has no cash settlement option. Can you just give us a little bit more detail on that, the difference between a Brent contract and WTI, Amrita? I think very broadly speaking, the uh, point to remember is that Cushing, where WTI is delivered, is still uh, kind of a landlocked hub. Yes, it has pipelines in and out, but uh, unlike Brent, it can't really get on water. Brent always has the optionality to put that crude on a boat, and it can find storage anywhere in the world. 
whereas WTI is really about pushing, and that's why it can get stranded and you can get to these negative numbers, which you won't get with Brent. Amrita, I'm curious about President Trump's comments that he wants to support the energy industry in the United States. What are his options? We know that the that potentially the uh, Energy uh, Administration can potentially buy oil for their strategic reserves. We know that they can pay producers to keep oil in the ground. And then there's just the let it rip. Go ahead, produce as much as you want and let the chips fall where they may. Which is the best or least worst option of those? Well, I think it's a fantastic question. I mean, even if they buy for the SPR, that's only 75 million barrels, more or less. That's going to be a drop in the ocean, given the kind of demand losses we are seeing right now. Um, I think, look, bailing companies out and, and, and in any way, however the, the support comes through, the reality is um, we have to get the market to do the work now. And the, the market is doing it, right? That's why prices are where they are. And the only way supplies can come back is when you actually start to get uh, prices or rather inventories coming down. It doesn't really matter. And again, remember, even if there's some bailout packages, private equity money has dried up. Banks are not going to lend. So I think for the shale patch in particular, it's going to be very difficult for them to come back even as prices rise. Emrita, there's a recollection here of Midland of a number of years ago in 1986 of a number of years ago, and we all trotted out our the prize. We read it cover to cover and said Daniel Jurgen was a genius, and we're thrilled that uh, he wrote The Quest as a follow-on as well. In 1986, there was a primal scream from OPEC to do something, and they did it, and there was geopolitics and military involved in there and the rest. What's the primal scream right now from the cartel? What, what's their do something right now? Well, I think first and foremost for them, yes, they have done a historical deal, right? Yes, it kicks in in May. That's part of the problem because the deal kicks in after they've surged production and therefore we can still hit tank tops before that. Uh, They know they might have to do more, but they are also very aware that this is a demand problem. There's no way they can step in and cut 30 million dollars. But they're also very clear. Why should they be the ones to cut? I think everybody needs to uh, contribute. And that's absolutely fair. And that's, again, why the market has to do the work. You're not going to get U.S. and Canada to commit to cuts uh, legally, right? So I think that's where we are right now. They know they need to stabilize the market, uh, but they also know that there's not very much they can do in the very short term. That's why I think the two-year OPEC deal is very important. They know they need to continue with cooperation for a longer period of time because this is going to be a market that takes a long time to recover. Emerita, thank you so much. Just love having you on. Emerita Sun with us Energy Aspects uh, uh, this morning. Small business in America really struggling at this point, and we're lucky to have with us today Karen Mills, the Harvard Business School Senior Fellow and former head of the U.S. Small Business Administration. Karen, fantastic to have you with us today. Just tell me straight off the top, what more can be done to help a really struggling area of this economy? The smallest small businesses, as you all know, missed out on the last tranche of the Paycheck Protection Plan. And the good news is that hopefully, hopefully, Congress will actually pass this and it will start flowing this week. Now, the question is, what's going to be different this time? And I think maybe I'm a little more optimistic because last time it went through the banks first and their bigger clients got to the front of the line with all their paperwork. 
This time, there's something different, which is that a bunch of the new players like Square and PayPal have gotten their approvals, and they're all queued up. And their loans in their queue, they tell me, average $25,000, $40,000, instead of the 240000 we saw go out in the last. So if they flip the switch and those folks get their loans funded, which is still an if because we don't know if it's all going to work as seamlessly as, as they hope, then a bunch more of the small businesses may get through. This and there's is- a few other provisions, too. This is fascinating. I want to pick up on the squares of the world uh, and their involvement in this. When you talk about the funds that are being allocated from the federal government, are are the squares and the PayPal's of the world getting equal types of allocations to the uh, Bank of America and J.P. Morgan's of the world? Well, interestingly, there's no allocation. There's just one big pot of money. Now, in this new bill, there's a second pot of money. And what um, I had a recommendation. I spoke to a, uh, Pelosi's office in Congress, and I said, look, make the second pot of money $100 billion set aside for small loans, loans under $40,000. But instead, they said it's going to be set aside for community banks and community financial organizations, which I love those folks, but they are not the most swift and technologically savvy. So we'll you know, waiting to see if they're a good conduit. But the $60 billion that only goes through them, everybody else, Square and all those other folks, go in the main pot. And it's first come, first serve. Now, the good news is the technology is such that uh, everybody is now automated. They tell me end-to-end. They're going to press the button, and we'll see yeah. what the e-trans system takes. Karen, to John's question, in his absolute bewilderment over America's distrust of providing income support to people, long ago and far away, there was a struggling company called Tootsie Roll, of which you've got a nodding acquaintance. And there's a point in every company's cycle where they just need money. Why are we so afraid to just cut checks to small, small businesses? You know, I am totally in your camp because sometimes America forgets about its small businesses and they don't even get to the front of the line. I mean, why has it taken another week for uh, us to replenish it? We should know they need the money. Other countries are cutting checks directly into the hands of small business owners. So why, why aren't we? One of the answers is we actually don't have the kind of tracking data that they have in Germany and in Denmark well, okay. on our small businesses. But Maybe we should have that. Karen, don't we have a lack of trust data? To John's good question. I mean, there just seems to be a distrust of handing a $1,000 check to a struggling small business and saying, we trust you to pay your salary, et cetera, with guidelines. Where did, where did that evaporate from in America? Well, we should have more trust in our small business owners because they are the ones keeping the economy afloat. And as you all have said, they really need it now. And, you know, if there's somebody out there who took the money who shouldn't, shame on them. And I hope they look themselves in the mirror and they feel badly because they took it out of the hands of the corner store and the people in our community who are desperate for it. Um, But we shouldn't mistrust them. They are really our our livelihood. And, And I hope my concern is this is not enough money. My number is at least 750. And we're getting close wow. to that. But I think we're going to be out of money end of the week. 
Karen, something that you've touched on wow. at the start of this conversation, I think it's absolutely critical. How do we stop big companies competing with the small businesses that you're talking about? I'm not talking about 500 people. I'm talking about less than 50. The really small mom and pop stores across America that don't have the army of accountants that can't get the paperwork done quickly enough and cannot compete with public companies in America that were still able to tap this fund. How do we stop that? Well, my solution was to set aside a large part of it for small loans. We know the gap is loans under $40,000. That's the most vulnerable people, the women-owned businesses, the minority-owned businesses, the independent contractors. There's 24 million jobs at stake, really, of people whose livelihood, you know, they can't, they can't go cut the hair. So those people, I'm telling them, go to Square, go to PayPal, and sign up now so that you can be in the queue. They have the software that will help you put in your correct information. Karen, great to catch up with you this morning. Fantastic to have you with us on this program. Karen Mills there, Harvard Business School, senior fellow, former head of U.S. Small Business Administration. It is an extraordinary pandemic, the ebbs and flows of it. And with it now, while there's some changes, there are some better statistics out there. But still, it is very difficult in the emergency rooms across America. Lauren Sauer with us with Johns Hopkins University. She's expert in emergency medicine. Here's an update from Lauren Sauer. We have a lot of tests in the United States, but unfortunately, I think they're not distributed in a way that allows us to do systematic and broad testing. And that testing is sort of the linchpin of all the other public health measures that we're putting into place. So we definitely need to ramp up testing, um, and we need to make sure testing is happening in the, these hardest hit places. Uh, how do you see the lockdown ending? So we do, do we just return to normal, or will there be very specific health measures of social distancing that need to be kept? It's a great question. I think, you know, everyone's looking forward to the lockdown ending, but we have to do it carefully or we'll be back right in this situation or possibly even worse after we reopen everything. Um, testing is going to be critical to ending this lockdown, and then you link that testing with quick access to care, contact tracing, which is identifying people who had contact with people who are sick, um, and making sure that they stay isolated or quarantined um, if they're not sick until they pass their, their possible window of getting others sick. Those are the key measures for sure. Lauren, you're expert in emergency medicine, which I learned a long time ago is a, a, a process-driven uh, event. You go from step to step to step to step. What part of the testing steps, plural, is the one that's the constraint? What's the, the thing that makes it so it's so darn hard to get tests done in this pandemic? I think basically what happened is we had a not so great strategy and then we executed that strategy in not in a not so great way in a poor way and and so we were starting from behind from the get-go and so now we don't have sort of this systematic approach to testing it's a it's a patchwork across across the united states and people are making their own decisions they're they're working with what they have um, to get people tested but it's not systematic and no one has visibility on the whole system <clears throat> And so there's breakdowns right. in where tests are being done, the, all the pieces that go to it, um, the reagents, the, the 
the swabs, you know, there's small breakdowns, and those small breakdowns add up quickly. Exactly. So where, you know, I, I say this with great respect for the exhausted people doing this every day. I hear the clapping in New York City at 7 p.m. It's coast to coast. Great. Yeah. Where is CDC in all this? I mean, when I was in school, it was always CDC to the rescue. Shouldn't CDC with a full force of the Speaker, the Senate Majority Leader, and the President of the United States affect a uniform test? I absolutely think so. Um, I think, you know, we're hearing that from the federal leadership that there's enough tests, and that might be that might be the truth. But because they're not spread out and Im implemented in that systematic manner, it doesn't matter. <clears throat> we need leadership from CDC. Mm -hmm. We need leadership from ASPR. We need leadership from NIH, all supported by the administration to roll out a broad and systematic testing program. Absolutely. What can we do better in the U.S. to make sure there's enough protection equipment? Um, I think we need to look really hard at our supply chain and we need to be careful about how we're using PPE closely and, and one of the pieces of that is making sure that we don't reopen too quickly so that we're, we have time um, to build up our stores of PPE again, we have time to distribute it again uh, before we see another increase in cases if we, if we do open too quickly. So that's key for sure. Um, and then training people to use it effectively and appropriately continues to be really, really important. So as new people come on to work, um, as new people come into the healthcare system, making sure they understand what it's for, how to use it, and how to be safe while putting it on and off. Lawrence Sauer, another terrific update there from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and, of course, their emergency room uh, effort. Now, Sebastian Galley with us. And Lordy Asset Management, he writes a wonderfully eclectic research note on a more macro-macro, but also with a real bet towards foreign exchange as well. Uh, uh, Sebastian, I know that uh, Paul Sweeney's got all sorts of uh, interesting questions. I want to go minutia on you right now. <laughs> Mexico with a rate cut out of nowhere. Turkey with a capitulation today out of nowhere. What are idiosyncratic EM economies signaling when they see these surprise rate cuts? What it's uh, telling you there is that there, um, you have countries which have strongmen which are in charge and countries which are fairly democratic. And in countries which have a strongman in charge, you have a certain tendency to be very aggressive in terms of monetary as well as fiscal policy because you do need a core support from the population. You can't exist without it. And that means they are very sensitive to it. That means they accept a much higher level of inflation, and that's what you can be expected in, in some countries. Others are much more democratic. It's more mitigated. They, they take measures and might be less aggressive, uh, which might actually be the wrong decision initially. And you're seeing that, for example, in the case of Mexico, where there are cut rates. And if you look in the case of uh, Turkey, you can see that the real interest rate, so interest rates as you see them minus inflation, is, uh, is very unappealing for foreign investors. There's a very high level of inflation. A lot of it is because it's a very weak currency, which is importing uh, a lot of inflation through the country. And it's a country deeply in trouble because it's also uh, a large manufacturing base at the same at the time when there is not a lot of appeal. If we think more broadly about idiosyncratic risk, this is the particularity of emerging markets. They tend to break, uh, break in new in a different ways than break in, in old and well-understood ways. And what we're seeing is a, a mixture of things breaking and things also performing very well. So people will think of Taiwan and Singapore as being emerging markets. They are not, mm -hmm. but they're part of the same basket, and they're <sighs> performing extremely well. 
So, Sebastian, what do you make of what we've seen in the oil market over the last several days? Negative prices on that May contract a couple days ago. Just really, really once-in-a-lifetime kind of stuff. What's your view? Well, what you... There are two elements. One is the, the easy part of the supply hasn't been cut enough. I think that was evident for a lot of people in the market. And so it was not a surprise that oil prices continued to tumble afterwards. It was a surprise that we go to zero and to uh, negative rates, though quite a few commentators have been uh, making that, that point a few weeks ago. So not a, a complete surprise. What also was part of the process is most likely a fear that there would not be a delivery of the contract, that there would be a default. Uh, and, and that's probably something also we're going to discover in the next uh, few weeks, in the, in the next uh, few days, that there are some very significant accidents in the market. And I think every time the future gets to close to delivery, there will be uh, in the next few weeks, uh, in the next few months, pardon me, right. there's going to be a, a fear of uh, delivery mixture or a mix with also fear of credit risk. Sebastian, what's the fallout of disinflation and in goods outright deflation off of this collapse in oil? Well, if you're Japanese, if you imagine the way they've lived uh, for for now decades, uh, it's great. Deflation is not an issue. Uh, you do great. You go you go purchase your stuff, and it's cheaper than it was before. It doesn't mean the economy is collapsing. It just means the economy, in some cases, is not doing very well. What it is is a gigantic transfer of wealth from Russia and Saudi Arabia to the West. Uh, not all of America, because Texas, of course, and, and some parts uh, of the United States are, are energy producing, but broadly speaking, uh, a, a transfer of wealth to most of America of a very large scale. So it's going to last for a few months. Well, and as, <clears throat> yep. Well, this is really, I don't mean to interrupt, but this is really, really important for our domestic uh, listeners. Uh, Sebastian, are you suggesting that the president should be celebrating these oil price declines and that the, the majority of Americans will see wealth benefit from lower oil prices? It's a complicated question because one is that uh, the energy producing regions are typically more Republicans and so he's very sensitive by definition to it. It's a strategic part of the, uh, of the U.S. economy and it cannot sustain these levels of prices for very long. People have hedged, a lot of these companies have hedged, but these hedges, because they're not large companies, they're not multinationals in many cases, it will be hedged over three months. So as the three months go to zero, they get into into very severe type of, uh, of trouble. And that means he does have to intervene. But broadly speaking, it's great for America. Does uh, Do they need to put uh, tariffs on non-existing imports from Saudi Arabia or Russia? Uh, let them do it. It won't make much of a difference, if, if any. Does the U.S. need to be part of a um, fixing uh, organi- system with uh, with uh, OPEC Plus? That's, an, I guess, an, an open question. Uh, it's clear that there's a massive amount of supply. This supply will fall from the United States in the next few weeks very rapidly, first from the frackers, then from the big oilers as their hedge rollover. Uh, and so there's going to be natural stabilization of the prices. And that can be seen if you look on your Bloomberg screen in the term structure of uh, oil prices. They are much higher in the future than they are now. And that tells you that people think uh, it's going to eventually normalize. And I learned that function just a couple of days ago from John uh, Farrow. CT I still don't know it. <laughs> I still Go. don't know it, Paul. Still learning. <laughs> Sebastian, so we're going to get another here in the United States tomorrow, another jobless claims uh, number coming out, likely to be ugly once again. More than 20 million Americans have lost their job uh, in the last uh, month or so. How do you think about how this economy, given what is going to be just an extraordinary jobless unemployment rate. How do you think this economy is going to play out over the next several quarters? Can we get people, can we get this economy reopened and back to work, or is this going to be a long-term build? 
So, I mean, we're expecting on the Bloomberg consensus is for 4.5 million coming in initial claims. Deutsche Bank is calling for 17% unemployment. It's a huge, gigantic shock. And for some, like the hotel industry, it's a longer term shock. For retails and the likes, it's probably a shorter term shock. And what you have is a mixture of things which are very intense but don't last very long and things that can last much longer because there are defaults to companies which have permanent layoff. And because also the consumer is week and uh, even though when things are normalized people are going to go and shop for stuff they need uh, a lot of younger households for example yeah. have their rent that they may or may not have paid uh, they'll be concerned they're going to be rebuilding their savings which means it's going to take them probably five six eight months basically yeah. to start normalizing their their consumption so a mixture of different events which means that in two to four quarters i think we're, we're going to be okay but it probably will take four quarters Sebastian Gelly with us with Nordia. Sebastian, I just got an email from Christine in Frankfurt, and she noted that uh, we haven't talk, talked anything about Europe today at all, so let's jump into it right now. How critical, Sebastian, is it that Europe find a togetherness on debt, what is called mutualization? How critical is that, or is that just a dodge for the fact they've got to finally do something with the present instruments they have, like ESM? So they do have uh, instruments such as ESM to to do something, but probably uh, and they cost. So there's a, pay, a penalty basically to to participate in ESM. You lose basically control of uh, of your policy, which the Italians are very reluctant to do. So they're having a phone call on the ECB side today on the European uh, side. Are you going to be tomorrow. on that call? And, Are you going to be on that call? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, no, that's an interesting question. But uh, the, uh, the 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 European basically are have no roadmap or barely have a roadmap, have no goals that they're trying to reach, which are very clear and no way to fund them. And the main reason is, um, it's called the ant and the grasshopper story. And uh, it's a po- an old poem in French. And then, and the ant um, basically works the entire summer. The grasshopper uh, plays and dances. And when the winter comes, the grasshopper comes to the ant and asks for help. And the ant says, well, You've, you've, you've danced all summer, please continue. And this is Germany and Netherlands. So they, it's seen as cruel from one point of view. It's also seen as a fact that Italy uh, and the likes, but particularly Italy, Italy hasn't reformed. Now we have to pay for the fact that they haven't done their job. <clears throat> it's Europe, which means that eventually something will be done, but it's not going to happen soon. Uh, and, and it also means that Italy will have to go to the ESM within six months. Yeah. Um, for now, they're being held by the ECB, yeah. which is buying BTPs. Uh, but they might be downgraded so badly that they, they may or may not be able to use them as collateral. Sebastian, thank you so much. Just brilliant. Sebastian Galley with us, folks, with Nordia Asset uh, Management. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.